Hey there, welcome to the eighth and final episode of the third season of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and CrossFit junkie. And I'm Liv, a retired beauty queen and biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. This month, we're bringing on Pavle Yeremich, scientist, builder, and entrepreneur. His company, Aether, uses the fields of chemistry, biology, engineering, and artificial intelligence with the goal of developing a toolkit of molecular assemblers capable of synthesizing any desired arrangement of atoms. Let's get after it. Pavel Yeremich founded Aether Biomachines in July 2017 at the age of 21. After fleeing the civil war in Yugoslavia, Pavel understood that abundance is not guaranteed for everyone and that scarcity is a main issue in our society. With his team, Pavel is building a future of abundance for humankind in a post-scarcity world. Aether is reverse engineering the machinery of nature to manufacture any arrangement of atoms desired, enabling the production of new products anywhere on Earth. Pavel was featured in Forbes 30 Under 30 and would be happy to further share Aether's story and mission with you. Hi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Great. So just kick things off by learning more about you. Can you uh, tell us about your education journey in science and kind of what brought you to found this company? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I was always obsessed with trying to understand how can we build a future of abundance for the human race. I mean, it's not like I knew I wanted to engineer enzymes when I was very young, but I knew this was a problem worth solving. And I really couldn't figure out how you could do this. I actually, in elementary school, mostly read and, and talked about physics. Um, and I thought there were, that was the approach. Um, and mostly nuclear physics and astrophysics. But um, I was very fortunate starting in middle school and then mostly in high school to have the experience to actually work in a synthetic biology lab. Um, and through that process, so I, was, I was growing up in Davis, California by this point. So at UC Davis, I was able to work in a synthetic biology lab. Um, and through that process, I learned that, you know, not only had nature invented functional nanotechnology billions of years ago, but it was the first time I ever discovered something that existed that could have this kind of impact on the human race, right? There is nanotechnology, it does exist. Now, maybe we can't engineer it to do everything we want it to do, but it's the only starting point I have. And then, you know, going through my undergrad experience, I did astrophysics and bioengineering. I dropped out of astrophysics and I finished bioengineering. Pretty much from that middle point in my life in middle school, I knew that, if we were going to build this future of abundance, if we were going to build nanotechnologies that could build anything we wanted, nature was the only starting point I had. So how do I, how do I as quickly as possible learn as much as possible about how humans can engineer biology um, and then build systems that can engineer it on demand, basically? And I think, um, you know, from an educational perspective, I think the really the most impactful thing for me was actually the experience of working in the lab. Um, I actually found a lot of the time that, you know, the classes in bioengineering were much less useful than just being in the lab all day, late at night, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes and just, you know, rinse and repeat over and over again. Um, and then when I found it Aether, you know, that became 100% of my time and pretty much all I do nowadays. I'm a huge advocate for learning on the field. You know, I, I liked classroom learning and I think a lot of people do. I liked the idea of, you know, going in, listening to someone talk that knew a lot more about something than I did. But I found that once I was done with that part of my life and actually got to really invest 100% of my time in a different environment, I felt like I was learning a lot more, a lot faster. So I definitely agree with you there. Where did you do your undergrad? So I did my undergrad at UC Santa Cruz. Okay, cool, cool. So when you are describing, you know, this nanotechnology that in the sense that we can 
manipulate it to create anything we want as, as humans, what my mind immediately goes to, and I know that this is not the point, this is perhaps a bit of a stretch of what this is actually going to be. It reminds me of Iron Man in the Marvel movies. All of his suiting and all of his tech yeah. is nanotechnology. So this is what, this is kind of what my mind is immediately going to. Well, that's that's not far from the, I mean, so, so um, I can kind of lay this out a little bit. So, um, I mean, obviously we are very far from the Iron Man suit, though that is in no, smart part, uh, no small part part of the goal. So, so, so I have a pretty strong belief that even though biology is the starting point to build re- real nanotechnology, it is not what real nanotechnology will look like in 30, 40, however long it takes for us to build this. I believe that there is a different form of nanotechnology that we will eventually be able to build. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like today, but I know that to achieve that, I have to figure out how do I assemble any molecule I want quickly so that I can test the properties of that molecule. So, I mean, just to get really tangible, like imagine you're trying to build the Iron Man suit nanomachine, right? And let's just pick up a, a, a funny example that let's say you need, you need some kind of turbine, nanoscale turbine because you need to generate energy. If you were a person today tasked with designing a nanoscale turbine, you not only have the problem that, I mean, there aren't really good forms of molecular CAD, but that's solved for it. You can do molecular dynamics and stuff like that. And you can, you can try and simulate the results. But even if you have the most perfect CAD system for nanoscale engineering, you might design five different turbines at the nanoscale, and then you have no idea how to make them, right? It, it's, you need to have both. You need to have the design and the actual prototyping capability. And so I think that, you know, enzymes are a useful intermediate zeroth generation nanotechnology that will help us build the building blocks of first or second generation nanotechnology, whatever that generational gap looks like, um, which will eventually look much less like nature and much more like something built by human beings. And I actually think, you know, our goal is to make nature obsolete um, because biology evolved to solve a very specific problem. It solved to solve the problem of self-replication on our planet. But there are a lot of applications where there's a lot of baggage that that kind of solving that problem comes with that is unrelated to the problem we're trying to solve here. And so I, I do suspect that even if zero and maybe even first generation technology is at least partially peptide based, um, the, I think second, third, and anything after that will be extraordinarily different um, and much more similar to the Iron Man, Tony Stark suit thing. Though I, I do think that will take quite a bit of time. I mean, biology gives us a really good blueprint. Is that a good way to put it? That essentially the way that biology functions, the way that the machinery we have as human beings and the way the, the machinery that biology naturally has given us is a good blueprint and a good starting point for yeah. this sort of technology. Exactly. And you want to take it beyond that. And optimize it. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think it actually, it gives us hints as to how, you know, second generation nanotechnology really look. I mean, um, something that's always interesting is when you look at, papers written on the more complex sci-fi like uh, nanotechnology that people have thought about, um, people often inappropriately apply macro scale design principles to the nanoscale. And you can learn from what nature has had to evolve to figure out what's an inappropriate application. And a really good example of this that I've seen often is, um, you know, people will often consider the incredible amount of molecular noise at the nanoscale to be a problem to be overcome. And, you know, you'll, you'll read papers about like, constructing highly rigid objects that can survive this amount of constant jostling, the Brownian motion. But when you look at what nature has done, nature actually takes advantage of that energy. Um, and so I, I really think it's absolutely blueprint. And, and there's a lot that you can learn in terms of um, 
what are the macro scale principles that you should no longer apply? Like I would never build a car that could just be jostled around by anything. But at the nanoscale, actually that noise is an ally. It's not a problem. And I would guess that if you're trying to design it as if it was a problem, you will have much less success than if you kind of built off of and learned from what nature had already done. Yeah, absolutely. And in this whole journey that has brought you to Aether and what you're doing now, is there anything that is memorable to you, whether it was a discovery that you read about or a discovery you made, um, a piece of knowledge that was taught to you or some sort of experience you had that really was that kind of aha moment where you said, this this is where I want to go. This is what I want to do. Um, this is a problem I want to solve. Is there kind of like a, a moment in your life that drove you to where you are now? Or was it sort of over time that that happened? So one moment that I think stands out is and interestingly it's actually how I got my internship at uh, when I worked at UC Davis uh, in the Facciotti lab um, it, it was a moment where I really realized the breadth of complexity of functions that nature had evolved proteins to enable um, so uh, when, when you're doing kind of intro to biotech classes, there will always be some lab where you grow bacteria in a culture, and then you take measurements of how dense the culture is. And what you always see is this little bacteria, they grow exponentially, and then they taper off logarithmically when they run out of food. It's the S curve that you always see. And I remember that um, I was, um, uh, this was in, it was in high school, we had a, we had a biotech class. Um, Davis just has a lot of biotech going on, so we were fortunate to have that. And um, we were actually growing a culture of this salt-loving archaea, not technically bacteria, but there are microbes. Um, and the lab was, you were supposed to take like five time points and show the S-curve. And I remember even then, I was always a big fan of just <laughs> gathering more data. So I took, instead of once every hour samples, I took once every five minutes or something. I don't know, I just stayed over lunch. Um, and I noticed that the bacteria grew exponentially and then as they started tapering off, there was suddenly a dip and then it went back up to the same level. And I repeated the experiment like four times, always saw the same dip. And when I started looking into it, there was a professor at UC Davis who I ended up working with. I didn't connect the dots that he's the one that provided my teacher in high school, the, the samples. Um, I asked him about it, I sent him an email and it turned out that what was happening was these microbes, when they reach a certain density, they create gas balloons made out of protein. Um, that let them uh, float to the surface, which basically means they're avoiding the laser that I was using to, um, to measure density. And I remember that moment, I mean, this, there are many moments like this, but that was one of those moments where I said, well, wait a second, that's it. I mean, that's incredible machinery. It, it literally constructed like tiny zeppelins that it used to float itself to the surface. I just remember that being one of those moments where I thought, this is really, this is nanotechnology. Like this, this is what I've been looking for for a long time. So that wasn't necessarily the pivotal moment. I mean, this has just kind of been a constant thing that's been driving in that direction, but that one stands out as a like, wow, that's actually a really interesting, unique functionality that I'd never considered being possible at the nanoscale before. Yeah. It's, it's always really fun to hear all of our guests. They're like aha moment and like kind of what was like the moment they clicked or the moment that steered them on the path that they're on. It's always really interesting. So thank you for sharing that. So turning, veering to the, the side, I guess, a little bit here. Um, wanted to kind of get a better sense of Aether's technology and what, what you guys are working with. What are the general purpose uh, molecular assemblers and why are they relevant to us? Yeah, so, so uh, let's talk about what specific problem Aether is trying to solve. So 
Ether is trying to build a technology that if you give me an arrangement of atoms that you want made, whether that's a life-saving therapeutic, a next-generation material, or, or, or a nanoscale turbine, right? Um, that we can design a machine that can assemble those final arrangement of atoms, right? That, that's the goal is give me the molecule, I can make it for you quickly. When you think about how we try to solve that problem and how we try to use reverse engineer nature to solve it, we have to overcome a really significant limitation of modern biological engineering, which is to date, for the most part, obviously there's always exceptions in edge cases, but um, traditional biological engineering for the human race has always been some version of directed evolution at the end of the day. We are taking something that more or less existed in some form. We are putting it in a new context. We are optimizing it. We're, we're changing it a little bit, but, but basically we're moving up a fitness landscape. Um, and we're going from something that wasn't very useful to very useful. Like we're making rose oil no longer in, in roses, but in yeast, or we're, you know, taking antibodies that attack cancer cells and instead of one, you know, uh, uh, immune cell in your body producing that antibody to producing a huge amount that we can inject into your body. That's kind of how it's always worked. And there's a lot of value in that. But if we want to create any molecule you want, it's a really bad bet to assume that there's already something in nature that makes the molecule you want. Like if I want an nanoscale turbine, I don't want to be reliant on the fact that nature's already figured this out for me. That's just, that's just not a very good bet to make, I think. I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong. So, um, in order to solve that, you have to figure out how do you build a mapping from function to design, for, from enzyme design to the function or the molecule produces that's sufficiently robust that you can go backwards and say, for this molecule, here's what the arrangement of the enzyme looks like that can probably make that. And I think in order to do that, you can't rely on you know, existing databases or anything like that. It's just, they're, they're not large enough, rich enough. And we have to do is build what we call enzymatic indexes or indexes. And what those specifically are, you can think of them, you know, rather than testing a bunch of different enzyme designs against a couple of molecules or one molecule, it's really creating this kind of combinatorial screen of many different enzyme designs against many different molecules because functionality for an enzyme is multidimensional. Enzymes can do many different things. So if you're only testing against one function, you have an incomplete labeling of what that enzyme design actually does. So you have to test against a bunch of compounds, find out what is it really doing. Um, and so the, the, the platform is built in a way where it can generate these indexes incredibly quickly. And then the neural networks, they're not just neural, I mean, we have an ensemble approach, but um, our machine learning algorithms more generally will train off of this enzyme design did this function or this enzyme design did not do this function or catalyze this reaction or didn't catalyze this reaction. Um, and then use that to create a map in a computer of all sequence space that's getting better over time. As we build that map, we can use search algorithms to search through sequence space to say, hey, we need this new molecule that's never been made before. Here's all the enzymes we've mapped to date. Give me a thousand enzyme designs that might make this molecule. And it'll probably be wrong the first time it does it. But we're gonna start iterating. We'll take those thousand designs, we'll make a thousand changes to each one or something like that. Um, we'll test against a large panel of compounds and it's an iterative process. And the really key thing is those machine learning models that map of sequence space or enzyme space sounds a little kooky, but um, uh, uh, that map of sequence space gets better and better and better. And it's because we're not just testing a lot of different enzyme designs, we are labeling them in a much more rich way. Um, and so kind of back to the original point of your question, like why do we care about molecular assemblers? What will that, why do we want to build that? That will give us the point, if we are, if Aether is successful, we should achieve a point sometime in the next five years that 
any arrangement of atoms, as long as it's not precluded by law of physics, can be assembled by our system. And I'm very much willing to bet that we have not limited the potential of the molecular world. Um, that's another thing that I'm kind of making a bet on. I could be wrong about that. And if I am wrong, there's no value in either in what we're doing. But I think I'm not wrong. So this this kind of, I hate to call it a pipeline, because it's not really a pipeline, but we'll, we'll call it a pipeline just for, for sake of kind of putting a label on it. You have to have a really good understanding of chemistry, right? Because you have to understand how you're going to piece together all these atoms. You need to have people that are really understanding of biochemistry and enzyme biology because you have to understand how enzymes work and what kind of drives their function and um, you know what can an enzyme do, what can we make an enzyme do. You need to have people that understand AI, machine learning. Who is on your team? Like who is making Aether happen right now? Because you have so many different fields working together for this really incredible goal, but the reality is it's not one person, right? It's, it's, you, you can't have yeah. one person that, that can kind of really understand all these different fields. So how are you able to make this possible when you're sort of interjoining all these different fields of science? Yeah, it's not easy. Um, I actually, uh, I think building this robotic factory has probably been one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Um, it was definitely way harder than I thought it was. Um, so there's a few things. Um, I am a really big believer in the idea that in order to build this kind of thing, in order to build a really incredible technology stack, you have to have an incredible team. Um, and I think there's really important things you need to filter for. So, so we have a bunch of different technical teams, uh, specialized in software, robotics, AI, biology, chemistry. I mean, that's, that's, and we're constantly growing that team all the time. Um, and, and when I'm interviewing people and trying to expand that team, I'm really looking for a few things. I'm, I'm absolutely looking for exceptional technical ability. Um, and I don't really care what university you went to. I don't care what your, you know, plaudits are, what, what awards you got. I am looking for evidence, and I will talk to you extensively over the course of 45 minutes to an hour, that you've solved incredibly difficult problems. And even if I'm not an expert in that space, that you've given it to me in sufficient detail that I understand that it was a very out-of-the-box solution. So that's kind of anyone, whether they are a manager, whether they're an individual contributor, they have to have shown the, uh, the ability to deliver exceptional results in very difficult circumstances. Um, because I think you it, it's hard like if you're a great manager, but you haven't really solved really difficult technical problems, I think it's much less likely that you're going to be able to work with the team to get them to solve very complex technical problems and understand that, that you know, um, when you're doing that, failure does happen. That's okay. Um, it's Failure is, is definitely an option. Not trying is not. So that's kind of part one. And then part two is, and it, um, I, I actually find is also incredibly important, is you. I look for people that question fundamental assumptions in their field. And this is easier to find and more common in sort of uh, machine learning. It's not super common, but it's more common in, in sort of fields that have experienced a lot of disruption in the past 20 years, where, you know, it's very unlikely you'll find someone who'll be like, well, this is how we've been doing it for 10 years, and that's how we're going to keep doing it, because most of those fields have had seen significant disruption. But I think when, you, when it comes to chemistry and biology, fields that have been much, they're disruptive, but much less disruptive, disruptive, sorry, um, it's really important to look for people that go outside of the box and challenge the orthodoxy as much as possible. Because what I tend to find in a lot of cases, especially in biology, though it's, it's certainly not unique in this aspect, is that people who have deep expertise in the field but don't challenge the orthodoxy will often not realize the constraints that they're used to operating with are no longer relevant at Aether um, or even at other companies, right? It's not necessarily unique to us. Um, and so you know, it's really about putting together a team of people 
who have delivered exceptional technical results. They have demonstrated the ability to move beyond what are the standards in their field. They've, they've thought outside the box. They've challenged the orthodoxy in some significant way. And, and, and in that last, and the second one doesn't matter if they were successful or not, just as long as like, wow, that was a really innovative idea. Um, optimally, it works at least once, but I need to, to see that you've done that. And then the final thing is just, um, you know, middle assholes. I think that's, um, <laughs> uh, that, that's harder. I've, I've made that mistake before. And I think in that situation, what I've actually learned there is because of how many different pieces of technical expertise and people with technical expertise you need to solve this problem, there will inevitably be clashes, right? People will disagree on how to do things because they come from such very different fields. And so what I've actually found to be the most useful indicator of success is how direct someone is. If they are able to communicate in sort of a clear and candid way, whether they like something, whether they don't like something, whether they agree or disagree with something, I think that that is a really positive sign for a person joining Ether. I think generally, but I think it's it's because so many of these problems when you have these interdisciplinary teams are because someone doesn't fully agree with something someone else said, but they don't really feel that they're an expert in that field. So they don't really feel like they can question it. Um, and that's where like 90% of these issues come up and they could have been very avoidable. So that's kind of the, the three things that you look for in building a team. And it's always a large team. It's never one person leading everything. It's um, sort of this buildup of innovations over time, you know, solve one problem and solve the next one. Yeah. And I doubt you have very much free time given your role in Aether, but if you did have free time, you would be a great motivational speaker uh, or life advice provider. I think you said that failure is an option, but not trying isn't. I love that. And I love that you, uh, the, the importance of being able to communicate clearly. Again, important in science, but I think important everywhere. And kind of on the topic of Aether still, before we talk a little bit more about you. So we were talking about your new partnership with Alonia. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what you're trying to do with them and, and why that's important? Yeah, absolutely. So, so when we think about the applications of our technology, because, you know, we do have to not just make money, but we have to produce products that help people, right? Um, and then optimally make money off of that. Alonia is a really good example, and we're really excited about this partnership. So one of the application spaces that we really want to build out an entire line of products in is in uh, remediating our environment and improving human health through that process. Because I just, I, um, I grew up in the Central Valley, partially in California, and our drinking water for a long time was not very good. Um, I'm sure my lifespan has been reduced because of that. And in, in the case of the Alonia deal, we are uh, partnering with them. Alonia has a great deal of in-house expertise in, for example, drinking water purification um, and working with municipal water treatment plants. Um, we will be engineering enzymes to degrade what are uh, called PFAS compounds or polyfluorinated compounds. So these are uh, contaminants that are just everywhere on the planet. I mean, literally, it's, it's almost impossible to find a part of the planet that's not coated in these molecules. Um, and they are associated with a bunch of negative health effects that we haven't fully understood yet. Um, a lot of cancers and, and other issues. So the basic premise here is we will engineer a new chemistry that can degrade these compounds as efficiently as they're needed to be degraded. And then Alonia will take the enzymes that we've engineered and deploy them in drinking water purification plants. And over time, I mean, with Alonia and with other companies, we will continue to build enzymes that degrade different contaminants. Um, that's just, a, I think, a, a key part of the change we want to see in the world. And, and it's also true for you know, it's both exciting for that reason, but it's also exciting because when you think about Aether, what we're trying to do is really create um, a toolbox of different atoms that we can join or break apart, right? Um, and Alonia is an example of chemistries where we are trying to figure out how do we effectively break apart 
carbon and fluorine or carbon and chlorine or other halogenated bonds. Um, however, enzymes are reversible if you reverse the conditions, right? You can run the reaction backwards. Um, the so as we build more complex molecular products, like, um, you know, you can imagine like nanoscale solar panels, for example, it's very likely that you'll want to have the capability of saying, oh, I would love the same molecule, but I would love to have these fluorines in these specific locations. So this partnership is the beginning of us building those data sets to allow us to mix and match adding and removing fluorines or other halogens over time. But right now, the main product with Alonia is degradation of PFAS in drinking water and a few other applications. No, that sounds really cool. Like a great value added that your company is bringing here now, because I know we've talked about a lot about like the grand ideas and like the, the vision, but it's cool to see how you guys are currently like today making people's lives better. And that, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. So you, you talked about a lot about like these, these teams you got going on, these interdisciplinary teams and have people butt heads, but at the end of the day, like everybody's working together, bringing their own lived experiences and their expertise into the, the fold. We'd like to just gain a better idea um, and appreciation of your lived experience and asking your life beginning in Yugoslavia and some of your formative years being spent there. What did you witness or experience that has inspired you to create change through your company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and just to, to clarify, I was born in the U.S., but I grew up a lot in Yugoslavia. So, um, oh, cool. But that, uh, yeah, it's um, I was born in Boulder, Colorado, and my parents were. So, so the backstory is my parents um, were grad students when I was born, and being grad students, especially in the '90s, couldn't really afford daycare. And so, a lot of my childhood, I was raised either in the United States or in Yugoslavia with my grandparents, um, or I was living with my parents and being raised in their laboratories because, again, childcare is unbelievably expensive, um, which is a separate conversation. So, you know, I think a lot of that experience was this understanding that I was not around most of the places that experienced the most intense warfare in Yugoslavia. I was mostly in the capital of Belgrade and, and a few other locations, but um, there were bombing raids. And I don't believe I was there for any of the bombing raids, but um, I was certainly there after. And so, you know, it's, it's very formative when you're growing up in a city and you come back at one point and this building that you knew was there is no longer there, but it's a pile of rubble. Or in most cases, most of the building is still there, but there's just a chunk missing because there was an explosion. And I think a couple things really stuck with me from that experience. One was this idea that, you know, you can't really take this whole stability thing for granted. Um, it's really easy for things to go south. But I think the other thing that was really interesting was you know, there was a lot of what I learned about Yugoslavia and you know, especially for my grandparents, uh, my grandfather, who was, you know, a partisan in World War II and was more or less a lifelong communist. There was this aspect of the idea that you can build a utopia. Now, I didn't agree with the way it was being approached. Obviously, it did not work in Yugoslavia. That clearly imploded. Um, but I think it was, it was both this idea that, you know, realizing that everything can go wrong very suddenly and you should not take stability for granted. Um, history never ends. It continues. Um, that was kind of part one. And part two was this idea that you should try to build utopia um, that it is not, you may never achieve it, but it's worth doing everything possible to try to build it. Um, and I think I really got that from the sort of techno utopian idea that my grandfather had and, and was actually common at that time. I mean, there's a, 
is a phrase my mother told me when I was really young, technica narada, uh, narana, which means uh, technology of the people. Um, and so it's like building technology for the people. So I think, I think that was also pretty significantly influential. Um, so taking both those two things and then also understanding from living in the United States part of the time that there was a world that could be relatively abundant and that you could bring a lot of stability and a lot of growth. Um, not that we have no problems here in the U.S., but we certainly weren't bombing each other into oblivion. First of all, an incredible backstory to have and a really unique perspective. I, I don't think there are very many people who kind of had one foot in one continent and one foot in the other in you know throughout their childhood. So it's it's really interesting and a really unique experience that you bring, not only just to uh, you know the sciences but to life in general. And I'm sure a lot of people will appreciate that about you. So here you are. You're 20. Are you still 25 years old? Uh, I just turned 26. Well, happy belated birthday. So you're you're 26 you. years old, barely. You have a science, a life sciences company, and you are not in graduate school. You have not completed graduate school. Uh, that is, I would say, relatively atypical, right? I think the, the kind of prescribed path about going about science is, you know, you do an undergraduate degree, you do a PhD or a PharmD or an MD or a something or other, and that sort of, the world considers you an expert. For, for better or for worse, that is sort of generally the benchmark for doing these sorts of higher level things in the sciences. How did you get to where you are without that? And what's your take on that norm? And I will take no offense to anything you say. I'm getting a PhD because I want to. Uh, so you're not going to hurt my feelings. Feel free to rip on grad school all you want. This is a safe space. <laughs> no, it's totally, I mean, it's totally fine. I'm in my apartment's doing your PhD right now. The, um, you know, I, I think certainly a part of it was both my parents are academics and I grew up a lot in university towns um, in, in, while I was in the U.S. And so a lot of academia was demystified to me very early on. There was very little mystery about it. Um, the didn't make applying to colleges easier, but it, there was very little mystery. And I wasn't very easily intimidated by professors because growing up, all my parents' friends were professors. And so I just, that was just a natural thing. Um, and I think, and I'm actually the first in, I don't know, at least two generations to not get a PhD in my family. It's kind of the reverse of the, the typical story. Um, Though my parents still want me to get a PhD, but I will not. Um, the uh, <laughs> it's just it's not in the cards. Um, it was really never about going to college for me. It was about building something and, and making this impact on the human race and really saving the human race. And whatever path was the fastest path to do that was the path that I was going to take. Um, I barely even went to undergrad, um, but I decided at the time that look, you know, I'm not entirely certain exactly how I want to build this technology. And UC Santa Cruz is very close to Silicon Valley, and so. Um, and there's a lot of resources at UC Santa Cruz. Um, so why don't I why don't I start there and, and see what I want to do? But I do think, and then this kind of goes back to our original, we started this podcast talking a little bit about kind of work experience and practical experience. I think it's really important to try to build something of your own as soon as possible. And PhDs are often a valid path to do that. Um, I don't think you necessarily need to have one. Unfortunately, we have a society that requires PhDs for a lot of things, but it's really, you know, I, I feel like, to me, it's about how do you as quickly as possible start building? And you'll not only learn what you want to build, but you'll learn how to build as quickly as possible. To me, that's the thing that I was always looking for and, and trying to figure out. And so doing that internship, uh, doing different research opportunities and undergrad, founding Aether, um, it was just build and, and do that as quickly as possible. Yeah, well... We really appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast. I'm sure our listeners will get a great deal of entertainment and knowledge out of this episode. And we wish you nothing but the best. Thank you for having me, guys. This is fun. 
Well, there we go. Another phenomenal episode. This one, definitely a little more heady, a little more nerdy, but I can get down with it. It was fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, so this is the kind of science that I get really excited about. And I think sometimes it makes me wish that we had a visual component of our episodes. Cause I know that if we had like a chalk talk style interview where, you know, we could actually see what was being talked about, it would, it would definitely help a lot. But I mean, fundamentally what they're really trying to do is design enzymes that can then create molecules. And, and if we're able to do that, and if Aether is successful, the doors that it would open in science and in society and in medicine and, you know, environmental science, like they talked about, would be kind of remarkable because if we can control that sort of machinery beyond what nature already has allowed us to control, I mean, the possibilities really are endless. I mean, it could end up being to the extent of Iron Man's nanotechnology suit. And, you know, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, one day. And... You know, obviously it's the end of episode eight, but, uh, you know, which means a little bittersweet because the end of end of a season. But I think it's for good reason that we are ending this season, Drew, don't you think? Uh, yeah, that's that is absolutely for sure. Because uh, we got some we got some big things coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, we've got uh, your, Tony's your medis- second birthday. Yeah, we, we what, what else? Uh, the 4th of July. Your birthday. My birthday. Um, um, our wedding. Your wedding. Yeah, your, yeah your, <laughs> so your wedding is the same day as my wedding. Isn't that kind of crazy? Same same place, too. <laughs> Isn't that wild? <laughs> <laughs> Heard you're marrying some loser named Drew. <laughs> yeah, wait, how'd you know that? Because it's me. <laughs> so that means that this will be the last time we sit down to record an episode as Olivia Pira and Drew Zebley. Yeah. Next yeah. time, next time we record an episode, we will be the Zebleys. We will be Mr. and Mrs. Zebley, the uh, the husband and wife dynamic duo. You know it. So I mean, I would say it's a pretty good reason to uh, wrap up a season and take a short break. Huh? I'd say it's I'd say it's the best reason. Yeah. 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 Well, that's all for this month's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans. If you're enjoying our show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find Science and Society. This officially concludes Season 3 of the pod, but we'll be back later this year with Season 4. Peace, love, and science. And weddings. <laughs> <laughs>